this is Anna. Welcome to ReaderPod Podcast. This is just a conversation that I recently had with the author Steve Matthews. I read Hitler's Brothel last year and gosh, I was blown away by it. He's got a new one coming out in the next couple of weeks called Hitler's Assassins, which unfortunately I wasn't able to read ahead of my talk with him, but I really look forward to reading it. And we also did a deep dive right into domestic violence. So be aware if you don't want to hear anything domestic violence related. Um, But here's the chat and I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Hitler's Assassin, it's more of a standalone, Anna, in a sense. Right, okay. You'll find there is a a crossover with characters here and there. Excellent. And uh, that's done deliberately because when the third book comes out next year, which is called Hitler's Resurrection, the main character from book two and one of the surviving characters from book one, they get together, two women. And oh, they go fantastic. Nazi. Yeah, they go Nazi hunting. Well, I can't imagine why they wouldn't be. If anybody's <laughs> needed hunting, it's the Nazis. Mm. So the assassins came about my, when I uh, uh, got the contract for Hitler's brothel. My publishers, uh, Big Sky Publishing, mm-hmm. they asked if I could make it into a trilogy. Mm-hmm. So they gave me a contract for three books, basically. But I had no... Congratulations. No, thank you. But I had no comprehension about what book two or book three was going to be. And then one of the, uh, the, the bosses at Big Sky sent me a document. Absolutely fascinating. After the Second World War, mm-hmm. the Allies, or mainly the Americans and the Brits mm-hmm. went and gathered up all the people that were very close to Hitler. So when I say very close, I don't necessarily mean Goering and Himmler and those people. I mean Hitler's chauffeur, yep. his valet, his cook, and so on. And those people were were held in custody and asked to give statements as to their, their time serving Hitler, what he was mm-hmm. like, how decisions were made, that sort of thing. So they could get a personal look at the man as opposed to a military look at him. Mm-hmm. And my publishers got hold of uh, two of these statements which are in a book form one was from his his valet so this fellow uh, made sure his suits were always cleaned his clothes Mm -hmm. were decent uh, his shoes were shiny and whenever they traveled he had to make sure Hitler had the right clothes to where he was going to of course Hitler was was very bad at choosing ties so his valet had to choose his ties and lay them out on the bed and then tell Hitler which one he really had to wear things like bless him you're right the other bit which was even more interesting was Hitler's chambermaid. So she made his bed, she scrubbed his toilet, she scrubbed mm-hmm. his bathtub, she gave him clean towels. She was there when he was grooming himself, getting ready to go and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And it was absolutely fascinating some of the insights that these two individuals gave to Hitler himself. It's and- fascinating, isn't it? You understand getting close to the people like Goring, like you say, the people who knew him politically, but the servants and the, the people who knew him intimately, who would have thought? Mm. Yeah, fascinating. There was, yeah. yeah, there was two really interesting things that you use the word fascinating because it's the mm. right word in this, in this context. Hitler's favourite occupation, his favourite job of the year was wrapping Christmas presents for his staff. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, it's astounding. And every member of his staff, and there were a couple of hundred of them, were given um, in November, they were given a piece of paper with numbers one to five on it. Mm -hmm. They were asked to write in one to five their preference for a present. Then Martin Bormann would go out with trucks and buy all these presents on behalf of 
Hitler. Hitler would choose which one he'd give to who. And then the presents would come back and Hitler and Eva Braun would sit down in, they had a present room, a gift room, and they would sit in there for two days and wrap them all personally. And every single member of staff got a handwritten note of appreciation from Hitler as well with the Christmas present. That's quite astounding when you think it is. Yeah. And my, um, you know, when I win the lottery, I would love to have a, a presents room and a, <laughs> all of the gift paper all lined up and the ribbons all ready to go. But Hitler had oh, yeah. one of yeah, all the well, evil naval minds. I know. Bloody but hell. the presents room, the, the royals in London have this as well. Yeah, because that's probably people send them on. so many gifts. Mm. Hitler used to get food, hampers, flowers, cutlery, you name it, he got mm. it as gift, as well as mailbags full of fan mail from women. But he, he was, was giving it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So he kept all this stuff in the present room, apart from the food and, and the uh, consumables, which mm-hmm. he sent down to old people's homes oh, in, in uh, Birch's Garden, where he lived. Uh, he sent stuff to orphanages and all the rest of the stuff got crammed into the present room. And that's uh, some of those things were, were re-gifted during Christmas. <laughs> the other thing I found that astounded me was, uh, and I didn't know this, and it's strange why his valet would make this point. The first law that the Nazi party passed when they came to legitimate power in Germany was anti-cruelty to animals. How weird is that? Yeah. You can't slap your dog with a wet newspaper because it's peed in the corner of your lounge, but you can go and but murder you can go six in. million Jews. Yeah. How strange. It's such a contradiction. I find it fascinating. Yeah. And that's why I like writing about it. Oh, I mean, I don't think we'll ever work him out. Um, and I know that in the preparation for reading Hitler's Assassins, I read that he was a drug fueled and that it was, is her name Clara, your main character? Clara. Clara. I didn't want to read too much about it. I don't like spoilers at all. But so Clara got to see him intimately up close and it was just drug fueled craziness. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to read it. He had a a weird doctor, a chap called Morell, and he was a quack, basically. Mm -hmm. He was a qualified doctor, but he was into all this weird stuff, Um, um, all different sorts of drugs. There was, um, I think. He got off, I think, didn't he? Uh, No. No, what happened was after the war, a journalist tracked him down wherever he was in Germany. Uh-huh. She tracked him down and interviewed him. Then the authorities, the Americans, took him and put him in prison. And they kept him there for two years. And he says the Americans tortured him, pulled out his toenails and things like this, which I can't believe because he was only a doctor. He had no say in policy or anything like that. Mm. And they they dumped him somewhere. I can't remember where what city it was now. They dumped him out uh, on the pavement in a city in Germany. Mm-hmm. and he was taken to hospital and died so but he was a weird one um he used to inject hitler with things like feces animal feces because hitler had a gut problem and he couldn't overcome this so morel would try all these weird and wonderful oh gosh the, some of the drugs and he kept notes on everything mm. so every time he injected hitler was several times a day for years wow. And gave him these weird tablets. Yeah. Um, in the book, you'll see there's a, a tablet called Dr. Kloster's Anti Gas tablets and they were real at the time and uh, Morel was giving these to Hitler with every meal because Hitler was terrified Anna listen to this he was terrified of farting in public (laughs) I mean we all are aren't we (laughs) but he was more than anyone because he was considered by the German public to be almost godlike yeah he wasn't human he was a god and he was terrified of passing wind in public so Morel gave him these tablets and two of the ingredients in the tablets were cyanide and belladonna poisons 
Wow. And towards the end of the war, another doctor came on the scene who was brought on by Himmler, and he took some blood out of Hitler, and he said to Hitler, look, you're being poisoned. You've got belladonna, and you've got... Uh, and cyanide, in your- yeah. And Dr. Morell said, you, of course you have. It's part of the ingredients of the tablet. You're still here, aren't you? Obviously, it works. So Hitler kicked the other doctor out and kept Morell. Well, when you're scared to fart, you're scared to fart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So he was quite a funny character. Eva Braun used to call him Stinky Morel. He sounds like he was but just... He had, he had bad body odour and dandruff oh. as well, Morel. <laughs> and he always had soup stains on his tie and his suit. And, you know, he was just a, a real scruff. And, oh, uh, so we really did get to him. learn Hitler's up close and personal. Yeah, all through Hitler's assassins. It's, it's all pretty well true. Gosh, I'm still coming to terms with him being... Um, I knew that he was a vegetarian and I knew that he loved dogs. And I've always been troubled by that. But I didn't realise that the first law that he passed was was an anti-cruelty to animals one and that he had the present room and loved Christmas. Yeah, strange, isn't it? But you know what else? He didn't believe in Christmas. He didn't believe in God in the sense that you and I celebrate Christmas, the birth of Mm -hmm. Jesus. So at the top of the Christmas tree was a swastika. And on all the Christmas trees in Germany were um, those silver balls and things like Mm -hmm. that. But they had the double lightning bolt SS insignia on them. I've seen that, yeah. Or swastikas or pictures of Hitler. (laughs) So people were allowed to celebrate Christmas, but not in the religious sense, only in the seasonal sense. It was a day to celebrate. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that kind of makes sense then. What a conundrum, Mm. though. Goodness. Yeah, it's really odd. Another strange thing that Hitler produced, this is strange and terribly sad as well. And I won't tell you what happens, but I'll tell you that Clara, his cook in in Hitler's Assassin, she gets caught up in this. And it's called the Sippenhaft Laws. Now, they were real laws Mm -hmm. that were passed through the Nazi parliament. And basically what it said was, say you're my daughter and I'm the father. I've been found guilty of doing something against the Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. You are guilty as well because you are of the same bloodline and your children would be guilty. So all of us, I would be executed. You and your children will be sent to concentration camps. And they brought that law in to drag in the Jews as much as they could. Yeah. So yeah. They, they faked some law against granddad and then they got his brother, his sister, his wife, his kids, yeah. his grandchildren. And, they and it also would have made way. people petrified to speak out because you're not just getting yourself into trouble. You're getting it. all of the, your loved ones are going to be yeah, in the same boat. Right. Yeah. That's right. So Clara gets caught up in that in in the book, and it's it's really good. The book is open ended. This time. oh yeah, excellent. First book, the first book isn't. In first a sense. book's very much resolved, which I liked as well. I love, but um, I don't think I've ever read anything like Hitler's Brothel. And I read plenty of historical fiction, but this one, it's a historical thriller. I was on the edge yeah. of my seat for lots of it. Yeah. Oh well, thank you. I, I, I like to write about social injustice. At the you moment, do it I'm very writing. Well. Yeah. I'm writing about it in a war situation, but Mm -hmm. I'll be writing about it in the future outside of war in everyday life. And I like strong female characters because mm-hmm. now is the time of the woman, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, w- women are being appreciated at long last for their true value. And I don't mean that patronisingly, Anna. I think it's a fact. Oh, no, I've absolutely. Awesome, strong wife. She's brilliant. I really admire her for that, for mm-hmm. her strength of character and personality. She's not bossy. No, she's not <laughs> listening. She is a bit. She is a little bit. But she's got a strong character now and it's terrific. I think um, putting it back into the World War II, like there were men and women in World War II prior to, 
um, I think the last couple of years, really. It was only ever men's stories that I had heard. Now, like you say, I think mm. it really is the time of the woman and we get to learn lots of things that women did that were heroic as well. Yeah, that's great. 70% of my readers are women, which surprised me because in essence, my first book wasn't <laughs> a war book. My first adult book wasn't a war book, but we've got Brothel, Assassins and Resurrection, which are all based in war. And the book after that is based in the First World War. But it's, so it interests me that I've got more women readers than men readers. That is interesting because I originally bought it for my partner, Dave, Hitler's Brothel. I thought it looked like oh, one right. of him. Yeah. So 70% mm. of are females. I mean, girls. Apparently so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I prefer the company of women. You know, when we go to a party or something like that, I hate standing around the barbecue with the blokes. It's so <laughs> bloody boring. They just talk about football. No, you get all the good football gossip. Football or cars. I like going in with the women and talking dirty and listening <laughs> to all, the, all their problems and things. Well, yeah, really you get good. much better conversation with us. <laughs> yeah, I think you do. I'm serious. I think you do. I like it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But I think that's probably because you're a storyteller. You came to writing quite late in life or were yeah. you always a writer but you just came to publishing quite late? I always wanted to write, even when I was at school, but I never had any encouragement. And mm. uh, years later, I, I eventually came to live in Australia. I was about 35 and I had hair. That's how long ago it was. Um, <laughs> my father had terminal disease, so I had to go back to England for a month uh, to, to see him through and to, to see my mm. stepmom and my brother oh, and everything through. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. And while I was away, my kids said to me, there's nothing decent to read. I used to read them storybooks, but the storybooks were pretty boring. You know, spot in the back of the car, going to the supermarket, sniffing the shelves, you know, that sort of rubbish. I, so I used to change them as I read the stories. And I spoke to my kids on the phone. They said, Dad, can you send us some stories? So I wrote them some stories while I was in England with my dad. And when I came back, I got a message from one of my children's school teacher to say, can you come in and see me? Would you like to read your stories to the kids? So I did that at, at the school. And then afterwards, he said to me, look, you should get these published. They're really, really different. So this was about the time that Paul Jennings was becoming really famous. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I sent them to a publisher and, and they ended up publishing four of them in America, Canada, the UK and here. And they were very successful for me. And I really wanted to write full time, but I didn't want to be a starving artist. <laughs> so I had my I had my own business, which was very successful. By the time I turned 53, I sold the business and all the premises and everything. And I was comfortable enough to be able to buy the farm that we're in now and oh, to be able to write full time and not worry too much about the income during Fantastic. the early. Yeah. But you never plan to be starving. You always plan to be successful. Yeah, I don't want to be a starving artist. No. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> much better to be a successful one, as you yeah. are. Oh, well, thank you. Years later, uh, I can't remember when it was now, a friend of my wife's came to us right out of the blue and said she'd left her husband. No big deal happened happens a lot nowadays but she'd left him because he'd been abusing her for 25 years and her teenage children were abusing her as well oh. all within the four walls and nobody knew outside the family not a soul knew about it and she eventually summoned up the courage to leave mm -hmm. and petrified she, she took Diane into uh, into her secret and told her all the ins and outs and then uh, Diane and Daisy is, is what 
what we call this lady. They mm-hmm. came to me and said, we want you to write Daisy's story. And I said, look, I'll write kids' books. And Daisy said, well, I've got my diaries. And she had this, Anna, she had this pile of diaries about this high. They yeah. were actually Woolworths kids' exercise books. You know, those uh-huh. red covers and yeah. covers? Yeah. yeah. And she poured her heart out in those for the last 15 years of her marriage. Is I that Skinny up. Girl? Yes. Oh. And that's where Skinny Girl came from. I've just ordered that from the library. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Daisy's husband used to call her Skinny Minnie because she was very thin. And I cried so much. I cried when yeah. I read the book. Yeah. And uh, in terms of numbers, it's not my most successful book yet. But in terms of impact, it certainly is. And Diane and I have been in different places around New South Wales. And people have come up to us and said, yeah, I know who you are. You're Steve Matthews. And I said, well, how do you know that? And they said, well, I read your book, The Skinny Girl, and it changed my life. I left my husband oh, a wow. year ago and I'm safe now. Oh, you must be so and, proud. Yeah, it was yeah. wonderful. And, and that happens a fair bit. And we did 60 signings and talks in one year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all over Queensland, New South Wales, and then COVID hit and the thing sort of just died. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's had an impact on women and we've heard some of the most awful, awful stories after we've done a signing or a talk or something that the yeah, women come to get their book signed and they sit and talk to us for hours about yeah. their lives. Some of the things, oh my God, I can't believe some of the things. Mm-hmm. One thing that was interesting, I finished one talk and then you do a Q&A, obviously, mm-hmm. at the end, and there was one man in the room and he was about six foot six, like a beanpole. He was, he was right in the front seat and he kept staring at me all the way through the talk. And then he said, I've got a question. And he stood up and this was in a, a country town as Dubbo or Wagga or one of those mm-hmm. large country yeah. towns. He said, you haven't mentioned about men being abused by their wives. And I said, well, I haven't because this is Daisy's story and that's what I talk about. And then he started crying. Anna, this and then he, to everybody in the room, he told them his story. Oh, and good on him. Yeah. Yeah. He said afterwards, oh my God. God, I it's, feel so much better. It's nothing for for the victim to be ashamed of. It, the person who is ashamed should be the perpetrator. Yeah, good yeah. on him for speaking up. Yeah, I think so. The skinny girl that you're going to read from your library, the ending of, is different from the end, the original ending I wrote. And my publishers made me change it, oh. which I was really upset about, but I wanted the book published. Yeah, of course. Um, because it's a two-part book. And book one leaves the reader wondering if Daisy is actually still alive. Oh. Or it should have done. Yeah. But they said they said, no, we can't, we can't have it like that. It's too black. And I said, Yeah, but there's a second book to follow. Yeah. And then you'll see what happens to Daisy. And they said, No, absolutely not. So I had to change the ending, the ending and, and show Daisy escaping from the house. Well, so I like a happy ending, video. so I would have been happier with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when the book went to Goodreads to review it, the review was really glowing. I was so proud of it. Then right at the bottom, the lady from Goodreads that reviewed it said, after saying all this, what I would say is I can't understand for the life of me why anyone would want to read this book. Oh, lovely. It is too, yeah, it is too down. It's too oh. horrible. Uh, that's not her words, but that's, yeah. I can't remember what said yeah. exactly. So my publishers didn't publish the review from Goodreads because they said, yeah, we, you have to publish the whole thing or none at all or none at all Mm. but it was really glowing the first two paragraphs of it and I thought then you know how dare the woman say it's too miserable and too sad because it's a bloody true story oh 100% yeah yeah, and women are going through that every day of their lives they still Mm. are some one woman dies every week in 
Oh, I've just done a deep diving into domestic violence accidentally. Uh, first of all, I did, um, we're doing it for book club at the moment. Um, you know, the one, um, When You're Mine. And then I backed it up with what I thought was going to be a romantic comedy. The Colleen Hoover one, but it ends with us. But mm-hmm. the cover is like flowery. And uh, anyway, also about domestic violence. Michael Robotham said that if this was terrorism, they would have fixed it by now. Like on average, yeah. every day, at least one Who person said that? dies. Michael Robotham. Right. Isn't he clever? After, yep. It is so true. And it's made a big impact on me. Like it's just in his acknowledgements. Um, and it was a thriller of a book. But yeah, yeah. too many people are dying. But we're not not even trying to improve people's situations here. Yeah, Diane and I, all the income from the skinny girl, we give away. Um, Half of it goes to a group called the Homicide Victim Support Group, Mm -hmm. where they help the families of murder victims. Mm -hmm. Um, Anita Cobby's parents and Ebony Simpson's parents started that group off 27, 28 years ago. And they're amazing people. Um, But I've been involved from the start. And um, um, the lady who runs it is called Martha Jabour. And she told me that 60% of the murders are perpetrated in a sort of domestic violence situation, yeah, yeah. one way or another. 60% yeah. of murders. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, it's revolting. Then, yeah. Yeah. And then we got uh, involved with a, a local charity at Camden that help homeless people. And Diane said to me, you've got to help these people with the proceeds from the skinny girl. And I said, well, it's supposed to go to domestic violence, you know, abuse <laughs> and domestic violence. So off we go and talk to these people and 40% of the people that are living on the street 40% of them are doing so because of domestic abuse yeah I'm not surprised at all that's crazy yeah yeah yeah. they told us there's 2,000 people in Little Camden Mm -hmm. that sleep in their cars in the Walrus car park or under the Camden bridge Mm -hmm. or or in laybys or dirt roads 2,000 people just in Camden alone Mm. so 40% of that is quite a few people that are there because they're not safe and they've got nowhere to go and they've got nowhere to go yeah yeah so so far we've generated twenty two thousand that we've given away congratulations well thank you i i I didn't say it for that but i i say it no not at all it's audited and everything like that and uh, i'm hoping my new publishers who's big sky who've done the hitler books i'm hoping they'll help me relaunch the skinny girl in a couple of years when my contract with the first publishers dies out then i can put the original ending into it and then write book two and make it a two-part oh great excellent mm. well i'm still so going to read it the... i could only borrow it from the library it wasn't available yeah. it's not in print I, th- yeah. I think highlight yeah. who published it i think they've gone out of business because of covid oh right well you've sent me on a deep dive <laughs> with domestic violence mr steve what an oh, accidental no, deep dive no Diane and I live with it because of the skinny girl and because when we everybody in Camden knows the book one of the shopkeepers in Camden in the Christmas I can't remember what year it was bought out now three years ago 2018 um, yeah so that year oh, yeah. Christmas, they had a double front shop front and they actually gave us one half of that shop front in December their peak selling time December and January to publicize the book and also to put messages up for people who are suffering in domestic violence this is where you go this is who you speak to that sort of thing oh fantastic yeah 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 so it's good it's nice to know the book's had an impact I'm very proud of that book oh yeah rightly so gosh I can't wait to read it now thank you yes thank you very much perfect well thank you 
for your time today as well. Yeah, you're welcome. Really we've appreciate it. If we put the world to rights. Thanks, Anna. I'm sorry I wasn't able to read Hitler's Assassins before chatting with you, but gosh, I can't wait to read it now. Uh, that's fine. As well as Skinny fine. Girl. Ah, oh, I shouldn't have booked you in so soon. Thank you. No. Okay, so thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time on Read a Pod Podcast.